Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. After a party of Roman soldiers devastated her family, the Iceni Queen Boudicca staged the largest rebellion in the history of the Empire. With vengeance in her heart and a nation at her back, Boudicca ransacked, pillaged, and plundered her way to victory in Roman Britain. Although there were four Roman legions nearby, Boudicca and her British warriors reduced Caesar's occupation of Britain to ashes. Just as suddenly as it began, however, Boudicca's rebellion collapsed when Roman General Paulinus defeated her army of over 200,000 warriors at the Battle of Watling Street. On this episode, we discuss Boudicca, Warrior Queen of Britain. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 4 of the series, we're discussing game changers, who they were, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer on our author's website, BradyKreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On our sixth episode of Game Changers, we're looking at an entirely different time period than we've been. We're going far back to the ancient world, an area we have yet to cover here in wartime, largely because the topic is so big and likely requires its own season altogether. We're going back to the year A.D. 60, to the age of the Roman Empire to look at a figure that is much heralded in British history, but little known in the rest of the Western world. She is Queen Boudicca of the Iceni. We are now six episodes into Season 4, and we have yet to cover the major impact of a woman in history. Game changers come in all shapes and sizes, all colors and genders. Uh, There will be more. There will be more. Boudicca is not the last, but she is the first. So before we talk about Queen Boudicca and how she brings in many ways the Roman Empire and Britain to its knees, at least momentarily, we do need to set the stage a bit. This will require a lot of background done very quickly. But again, on this podcast, we're getting pretty good at that. But as historians, we consider that to be an essential skill. So we'll try our best to make it feasible and make it fit. To give you an idea of why the Roman Empire is in Britain in the year A.D. 60. This is 60 years after the birth of Christ, 60 years after the year zero. You have to understand how the Roman Empire is growing. When we think of the Roman Empire, it's very easy for us today to visualize an ancient society or an ancient culture. There is some mysticism to the Roman Empire. There is a sense of maybe a manifest destiny to the Roman Empire. The Romans truly believed that they were the most modern people who have ever lived. Their way of life was the most modern way of life the world has ever seen. It was civilization. And they believed that it was their duty to take that civilization as far as they possibly could. We talked about Alexander the Great earlier this season. 
he has a very rich legacy in the minds of the Romans. And again, he existed 400 years before our story, this episode, in the year A.D. 60. But his legacy of conquest was immense. He really changed the game, we could say. But this ideology of expansion took the Roman Empire all over Europe. It took them into the Middle East. It took them into North Africa. And what they found was, everywhere they went, there were new people to deal with, and mostly conquer. Now, when we think of the Roman Empire moving into new regions, we always think of warfare. That's a big part of it. The Romans really believed uh, in uh, controlling and expanding through a use of very brutal force, if necessary. You might have seen the Roman legions marching. You might have seen the four letters that, I guess, encompass the Roman spirit. S-P-Q-R, Senatus Populus C Republicus. Um, the Senate, the people, and the Republic. Well, that Republic is wielded at the point of a sword. And that is no better seen than their experience in Britain. Britain is an island. If you're not familiar with it, look at a map of Europe, you'll see it. And the fact that it is an island has played a major role in how Britain has survived the larger conquest of empires for most of Western history, uh, ranging from the Romans all the way to the Nazis, until, of course, their own empire takes over the world. But you can't march an army into Britain, at least not easily. You can take over the continent of Europe, Adolf Hitler did, the Romans did, but you can't march that same army into Britain because you have to cross the English Channel. It's an island. So to move into Britain is a very costly and a very time-consuming effort, and many empires have found that it's just not feasible. The Romans learned that really early on. They learned that you can't march an army onto that island if you do, and once you do, you're in their world. The British Isles are populated with people, the Celts, the Picts, all sorts of tribes of people uh, throughout that region. They're hostile people to the Romans. They don't want to be conquered. They come from a non-Roman tradition. All of this is going to be very important for our story today. But in the year 43, that's A.D. 43, 43 years after the birth of Christ, a Roman emperor named Claudius will finally conquer Britain. He's the first one to do it. He's not the first one to try. And while you think moving an army into Britain and taking it over is the hard part, the reality is it kind of was the easy part. Because once you're there... You have to hold it. We say the British win the war, but they lose the peace. I like to say that a lot in these seasons. But what do I mean exactly by that? The Romans will find that the British Isles are a very inhospitable place. Again, uh, hundreds and hundreds of tribal groups, uh, hundreds of different ethnic groups, uh, all, again, with their own traditions, with their own belief system, all of them very different from the Romans. So what is the goal in Britain if you're Rome? I mean, why waste the manpower and the resources to conquer it? Well, like all empires, this is an investment, and there's big money to be made. The Romans believed that they were civilizing the British, using force if necessary. They believed that these people were backwards, uh, they were behind, these people were savages, effectively, and they needed to be tamed. If you have to tame them at the point of a sword, so be it. And this is the world that we see in the year A.D. 43 and A.D. 50 and A.D. 60. It was a tough nut to crack, but the Romans believed they were successful. The conquest of Claudius in A.D. 43 set this all up. Now let's talk a little bit about how Rome deals with these hostile territories. One of the nice things for us as historians, looking back on the Romans, 
is that they operate in a very clear and very predictable way, much like any modern government would. Remember, the Romans do not think of themselves as some uh, small seed of a larger Western history. They view themselves very much like we do today, as the most advanced, both technologically, socially, and culturally, and militarily, uh, uh, civilization that's ever lived. They believe that the world they're building is the modern world. We have to remember that, because someday, people are going to look at us like this. Um, and they, they, they have a plan for doing so. Now, typically speaking, it's always much cheaper to conquer an area without using military force than it is by conquering and holding it at the point of a sword. So what the Romans will tend to do, and you see this all over the ancient world, is move into an area, use force if necessary, uh, and then hold the area through diplomacy and politics. Again, the threat of force is always there, but if it can be avoided, it will be. And the way they hold these areas are by making deals. They go to these hostile regions, and they try to find a regional ruler or a regional king who will rule in their name. We call this the system of client kingship, and you see it everywhere. We see it, for example, in the Middle East, in Judea, in, say, around the year zero. They find a man who's one of the local population. He's a regional king. His name is Herod. And they say, you rule in our name, you can have all the power you need, just remember who you pay taxes to and who calls the shots. And that client kingship system is one you see all over the world, especially on what we call the frontiers of empire. Again, I am an imperial historian professionally. My specialty are the frontiers of empire. So this is something that I think is very important you need to understand. If you don't have to rule with an iron fist, you don't necessarily want to because it costs a lot of money and there's no certainty there. But when the Romans move into Britain, they're going to look to build that exact same system. Now, some of the tribes in Britain will go along with this. One of them live in the far eastern section of the island in what is today modern Essex called the Iceni. The Iceni are the center of our story today. Many others of them, however, will choose to fight. They will resist Roman rule and as a result, they will be crushed. Now, how do the Romans go about doing that? Well, again, they send in uh, diplomats to try and make these deals with these British tribes. If the deal can't be made, right, deal or no deal, uh, the military will take over. So how does that work? One thing for the Romans that was very important was maintaining a steady and constant, if not overwhelming, military presence in Britain. Again, you're never going to, you're never going to march an army across an ocean. You have to move them very slowly. So the Romans will rely completely on four what we call legions to hold down the British Isles in the year AD 60. They're under the command of a man named Suetonius Paulinus. Uh, we'll call him Paulinus from this point onward. He's the military commander of the region. He's an aristocrat. He's wealthy. He's connected. Uh, he's very high up in the Roman world. But Paulinus will command four legions 5,000 men apiece uh, in Britain. They'll basically be situated like this. If you look at southern Britain, because this is where the story takes place. This is not a story that takes place in Scotland or Ireland, not yet. But if you can look at a map of southern Britain, the four legions are going to be based basically uh, uh, in a square shape. Okay, there's uh, a legion in the northwestern corner, in the northeastern corner, in the south 
eastern corner and the southwestern corner. Again, about 5,000 men apiece. And for Paulinus, the commanding general, this system works really well. There are a network of roads that connect uh, this portion of southern Britain almost in an X-shaped pattern. And there are a couple new Roman cities popping up. And the idea is, if there's any problem, you can move uh, any number of these legionnaires uh, in any direction to deal with it. So you have four legions, 5,000 men apiece, 20,000 total in Britain, under the command of a general named Paulinus. And he's going to be the one that will be, the, I guess you could say, the tip of the spear for the Roman Empire in the region. He's the highest ranking official in that region. There are Roman families there. There are Roman soldiers there. Again, soldiers have families. Part of spreading your empire means that once you conquer it, you have to put people there. And that's what the Romans will do. Now, the Romans, even though they're much fewer in number than the British tribes, uh, are the ones in power. And they do a number of things to keep the British down. One of them is, again, what they call civilizing by force, effectively. They make these people pay taxes. They make these people uh, donate grain stores. I mean, they bring them into the empire uh, in a very expensive and costly way. They say to them, if you have regional kings, that's finished. We're doing something different now. You answer to us. And again, for the British population, the fact that the Romans are fewer in number but calling all the shots, and they're newcomers, they're outsiders, and they're not welcome, is something that's very, very troublesome for these people. Uh, and this is what you'll see, and, and, and Britain really becomes divided, even amongst the native Britons, between those who collaborate with the Romans and do well for themselves, and those who fight against them and are very likely crushed. So again, this is the world of A.D. 60. This is the world in which our topic today, Queen Boudicca, is born into. So let's get right down to it. Boudicca is the queen of an eastern tribe of British peoples uh, we call the Iceni. Again, they're in modern Essex. If you look at a map of Britain, they're in the far eastern corner of southern Britain. And the Iceni are doing pretty well in the year AD 60 for the reason I've already talked about. Uh, they decided not to fight against the British, but they decided to collaborate with them. So Queen Boudicca, the person we're talking about today, even though she will earn a reputation for fighting against the empire, uh, is actually someone who will collaborate with them very early on. Now, Queen Boudicca herself has very little power amongst the Iceni. I mean, she is their queen. But they do have a king at the time. It's her husband. His name is Prasutagus. Prasutagus, again, is forward-thinking. He wants what's best for his people. And Prasutagus will make a deal with the, uh, with the Roman Empire, with Paulinus. And the deal basically is, we will work with you we will give you a stake in our tribal society. And in that regard, I will ensure the survival of my tribe. So what does he do? Well, Prasutagus, again, has a wife and two daughters. These will be, in his mind, his heirs. But he also knows that the Roman Empire will never recognize a female ruler. So he gives half of his fortune, and therefore half of his inherited wealth, to the Roman Empire. And the Romans are happy with this deal, because again, if they don't have to march an army in there to suppress you, but they still have your adoration, they still have your submission, even better. Well, Prasutagus will die, and again, in his will, effectively, uh, he leaves his empire to his wife and his children. Also, half of his wealth will go to the empire. Now, as I've mentioned, the empire does not uh, respect a female ruler. They never will. 
So Prostatagus's will is basically thrown right out the window. They'll roll into her capital city. This is nothing uncommon. Again, they usually come to collect taxes, to collect stores of goods, what have you. And this time they have a very different idea in mind. They want to make a political statement. They want to do it in a very profound and very violent way. And they want to show the people of the Iceni that whatever they think of their queen, she is not in power. Rome is in power. Now, the way they'll handle this is very offensive to the Iceni. In reality, it'll be offensive to all of us. But it's especially offensive to the Iceni because they were collaborators. They made sacrifices, they paid their taxes, they followed the rules, and they believed that they deserved to be treated differently than other more rebellious British tribes because they do this. They aren't treated that way. Whenever the Romans come in after the death of their king, Prosotagus, uh, they're treated like they are a conquered people like they have a price to pay for their disloyalty, when they've been nothing but, again, loyal all the way. Maybe, if not loyal, they've been cooperative. A Roman army will move into uh, the Iceni territory. They'll capture Queen Boudicca. They'll strip her naked. They'll tie her to a post. This is all very public. And they whip her to the point of bleeding uh, and, and, and muscle tissue damage. I mean, this is a severe lashing. What did she do? Nothing. Uh, she's played by the rules all along. Her husband dies. She attempted to inherit his kingdom as he chose. And they're making a statement by uh, really brutally and savagely beating her uh, that she is no longer in power. Worse than that, the Roman soldiers will take her two daughters, one girl being 12 years old and the other being 10 years old. And they will defile them very publicly as well. Uh, and again, this is something that is shocking in its nature, but not unseen. When the Romans move into these ter territories they consider to be barbarian territories, the women are completely viewed as uh, uh, spoils for the victors. And it's a very horrible thing to say, but the Romans will, again, lash and beat Queen Boudicca, rape these two very young girls in a physical show of dominance, and they'll leave. And for the Iceni, they're left with a situation that they never comprehended, that they never saw coming. And for them, what's really some of the worst of the worst, that their village has been plundered, but their honor has been taken, and they've had some pretty violent scenes play out before them. Now, this is where Boudicca's story for us really picks up. And I think it's important we understand where we're getting this information. Whenever you talk about Roman history, or any ancient history, Roman and Greek especially, one of the things you'll find is that their civilization really did place a value, much as ours do, on history and record-keeping. And because of that, there are a few historians who lived during these times whose word we really have to follow nearly as gospel, because they're some of the only people actually keeping record of events. Some of them will be 200 years after the fact, some of them 500 years after the fact, when you study the ancient world uh, in the Middle East, you can see someone like Josephus uh, writing about events that happened 100 or 200 years earlier. Well, the Roman historian we're going to deal with is a man named Tacitus in this regard. And while Tacitus is writing from the perspective of a person who was not there, we still have to view what he's talking about and the way he's talking about it uh, as the most reliable source we have. Again, when you're dealing with primary sources, especially ancient sources, the oldest is typically viewed as the most reliable. Not always, but in this regard, we have to go with what Tacitus says, because he's all we have left. 
Now, I have this fantasy, maybe at some point, uh, the asteroid will hit the Earth, will be wiped out, aliens will only find the wartime podcast. And they'll repopulate the Earth, and they'll all talk about Brady Kreitzer and his wisdom of history, much in the way we deal with Tacitus. That sounds absurd, okay, which it is. I mean, let's face it. But um, that is effectively what we're doing with the historian Tacitus, the ancient historian Josephus, in this regard. We're literally taking the accounts of one person who wasn't even there and saying that this is gospel, this is solid, at least saying we have to give this the most, the most respect of any of the sources we have. So, um, all hail the wartime podcast for those listening in the future. But at any rate, if that doesn't happen, which it won't, you know, we have a lot of good sources otherwise in the modern era. So Boudicca's been defiled, been violated. Her family's been torn apart by this supposed um, betrayal by the Romans. And this is something for her uh, that will be sort of uh, a, a last straw, sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. She has no interest in playing ball with the Romans anymore. There is a group of uh, neighboring tribes, for example, uh, called the Trinovantes, who never played ball with the Romans. They never became a client king of the Romans. They never paid homage to the Romans. I mean, they were beat up for it pretty badly. Many, many were killed. But there were no friends of the Romans. And the Trinovantes, again, these are people situated to the west of the Iceni, more in the center of southern England, are more than happy whenever they hear that the Iceni tribe, a much larger, much more powerful tribe, are talking about taking some revenge on the Romans. Now, this is very interesting. We don't really know the process, at least not well, but we do know from the sources that Boudicca became a very clear leader of this movement. Maybe it was because of her relationship with Prasutagus. Maybe it was because she had the support, almost unquestioned by what the sources say, of the Iceni behind her. But they said that she was a person who was the clear leader of this movement. Again, they wanted revenge on the Romans. This wasn't just an Iceni problem. There's, it wasn't. Remember, we're dealing with now about 20 years of deep-seated hatred toward the Romans. And it's been sort of bubbling and bubbling and almost ready to boil over. And whenever Queen Boudicca sort of steps up to lead it, she finally brings kind of a cohesive face to the movement. She's a strong woman. According to Tacitus, she was a large woman, very tall. Uh, she had bright red hair. And as Tacitus says, she had unique abilities, usually not seen in a woman. So, I mean, we've got a long way to go. But that's what he said. I guess that's his version of a compliment in a very male-dominated world. She wants to strike. She wants to strike fear uh, into the Romans. She wants revenge question becomes, what's her target? If you look at Eastern England, this is where the story takes place. You'll see that there is actually a very rich target nearby. It's the capital city of Roman Britain called Camulodunum. Camulodunum is the modern city, if you're in England, of Colchester. Colchester sort of built over the ruins of Camulodunum. But Camulodunum is a place where she thinks they can strike. Why? Well, it's a symbolic target. It's the heart of the Roman occupation in Britain. There's a temple in the middle of the city built to the dead Emperor Claudius, the man who in the year 43, 17 years earlier, conquered Britain. So there's a lot to taking out the city. The fact that it's the capital, politically, militarily, the fact that it's a huge sort of entry point into the British Isles for the, for the Romans, that it's going to be difficult to replace, it's a high-value target, is even better. 
Now, the reason her strike will have success is really two or threefold, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that now. Remember, there's four legions of about 5,000 men in Roman Britain, and they're spread out in different corners of southern England. Well, right about the same time that Boudicca wants to lead this charge against Camulodunum, two of those legions, half of those legions, are actually 250 miles away on the complete opposite side of the landmass. It's in modern Wales. We call it Anglesey. At the time, it was called the Isle of Mona. But this is a very specific place that, again, is sort of a high-value target for the Romans. Because I've mentioned to you, there's several disparate tribes in Britain. That's true. But they do have a similar or shared spiritual heart. And it's located on the Isle of Mona, or what is today Anglesey in Wales. The people who live there are sort of the priestly tribes or the priestly class of Britain. You may have heard of them. They're called the Druids. And although these tribes all throughout Britain uh, have a maybe mutual interest in their own freedom, the Romans have found that they're much easier to divide and manipulate if you can take away any common bonds. One of them is their religion. Again, they all look to the Druids as their spiritual heart. They look at the Druids and Anglesey as their direct connection to the gods of nature, which they believe in. And the Druids are, again, very much an intermediary between the divine and their own world. So this is the one thing we can say without question that unifies uh, the, the ancient Britons at the time. Well, Paulinus, the, uh, the Roman general, targets those people for, I guess you could say, removal in the year A.D. 60. And he takes two legions, 10,000 men, to Anglesey to wipe them out. The result is catastrophic. It is a slaughter based on the sources of every single Druid. I mean, again, they're trying to take the identity of the British people away. They're trying to remove that element of their culture that binds them together. The faster they quote-unquote civilize and become Roman, the better. So he's going to take his men put them 250 miles from Boudicca, and more importantly from Camulodunum in eastern England, and he's going to wipe those people out. For that reason, when Boudicca rises up with her own Iceni and with the warriors of the Trinovantes, uh, there is nobody to stop her from doing whatever she wants to do to the Roman capital city at the time. Now, when she rolls into Camulodunum, Again, there is no resistance. She has over 100,000 warriors, both men and women. They're not armed with the modern weapons of the Roman legion. They're armed with uh, animal hide shields. Uh, they're armed with some swords, sometimes just rocks. Uh, they have very rudimentary spears, very primitive weapons compared to the Romans. But this city, left undefended, is, is completely open for the taking. Camulodunum will be entirely destroyed. The people of the popul uh, of the city, the people of the city, will pour into the temple of Claudius to try and hold out, but there's no going back. This is a total victory by the British, led by a warrior queen, and the men of the army have no problem looking up to her. So clearly, in a tribal society, she's leading from the front, so to speak. She's doing something that they respect and they respond to. And what we know for sure is that with the nearest legion. That can stop them about 250 miles away. Camulodunum, the capital of Roman Britain, is annihilated. Now, there is another legion nearby. That's a little misleading when I keep saying 250 miles away, because the bulk of Roman forces in Britain are 250 miles away. But just to the north, 
is the Ninth Roman Legion. And they're going to try and march, and again, it would be about five days march, maybe less, uh, to Camulodunum to stop this uh, onslaught. Uh, and it's a terrible march. Again, the men are very disciplined, they're very effective, these are the best of the best. But they're going to be marching for days, they're tired, they're cold. Um, they're not wearing their armor because they're not expecting a fight, it's very heavy. And on the way to Camulodunum to stop the fight, the warriors of Boudicca, some of them, will branch off and ambush them, wiping them out completely. I mean, this is a stunning victory over the Romans. In the Roman world, this is almost unbelievable. And it takes out effectively 25% of the Roman forces left in Britain to stop it. So Queen Boudicca is doing something that very few people have done before. One, she's rebelling against Rome. That happens a lot. But two, she's successful. Not only that, she's completely sacked the Roman capital. And she's wiped out an entire, almost an entire legion of Roman soldiers. I mean, this is nothing to sneeze at. Now again, the story for Boudicca is going to start to change. And it's going to start to change because of the circumstances we've already talked about. Yes, she's enthusiastic. Yes, she's angry. Yes, she wants revenge. And yes, she has a huge following. By this time, it's grown to almost 200,000 people. These are warriors ready to fight. But we have to understand that the Romans order their world on discipline. Chaos is the absence of Rome, and chaos is very much, to them, what they're seeing from Boudicca's rebellion. Remember, Britain has a series of roads built into it by the Romans that connect everything. This is just southern England we're talking about, and Wales. And this is the, the system that Paulinus will use to make sure that this rebellion doesn't get much worse than it already is. Now, he's got a few problems. One of them is that, again, his legion is divided. One of them's almost wiped out in the northeast. Two of them are, again, in the northwest, in Anglesey, taking out the Druids, a almost defenseless priestly tribe of people. And another is in the southwest, again, the very southwestern corner of England. He knows if he wants to march to the east and stop Boudicca, he's literally as far away as he could probably be at the time. That's about a 12 days march, and that's a forced march. That's marching all day and all night. He knows that's not likely to be successful, but he has no choice. He also knows he's terribly outnumbered. So Paulinus will begin to march his army uh, toward Boudicca, again going across the center of southern England, asking his army from the southwest, his legion there, uh, to meet up with him along the way. At that point, there'll be a whopping 15,000 men strong compared to almost 200,000 British. Not looking good under any circumstance. Any way you look at it, it's a very terrible situation. But the Roman army is built on discipline. It's built on modern military tactics. It's built on modern military equipment. All of the things that the British do not have. Now, when we get to the, the great meeting, at least initially, between Boudicca and the British, the Iceni, the Trinovantes, uh, and the Romans. At first, it's going to be a pretty nasty sight, because after Camulodunum falls, Boudicca's next target, the next sort of most important Roman city nearby, is one that, for us, is one of the most important cities in the world. It's London. At the time, it's a small trading outpost. It's a growing city. I mean, it's not Camulodunum, that's for sure, and it's certainly not Rome. But it's called Londinium. And Londinium, again, on the River Thames is growing. It's, it's, it's expanding. It's in the process of ingraining itself as an important part of a new Roman world. But it's symbolic. To capture Londinium 
for the British, for Queen Boudicca, would be to take out Rome in Britain in its infancy. And that's something that they're absolutely compelled to do. Whenever Paulinus looks at London, he sees a city that's so new, there isn't even a defensive wall built yet. There isn't even a protective fortification for the city. There will be a London wall built by the Romans way later. But this is after the time we're talking about. And Paulinus makes the probably very tough decision to abandon the city to the British, to let Queen Boudicca and her tribal peoples sweep in and annihilate it. And that's exactly what they do. Now, it's amazing, even still today, when you go to places like Colchester in the east and London, and you do some archaeology, admittedly it's hard in London because it's so big, but especially at Colchester, you can see through the archaeological record, digging a hole, looking at the stratigraphy of the ground, you can see what we call a burn layer in the archaeological spectrum. And this burn layer is usually black, a lot of broken pottery. I mean, you can literally see, like dissecting a, here we go again, a cake, looking in the middle, a dark, thin layer. And that was the time, A.D. 60, when Boudicca struck. And she's wiping out major cities. I mean, you're dealing with huge portions of the population here. And this is something the Romans at this point have very little answer for. But again, dealing with Paulinus, he knows this is all bad. But he is at the helm of some of the greatest soldiers in the world. No doubt. The Roman Legion. He knows they're disciplined, they're well-armed. They are prepared for this. This is a rebellion the scope that they haven't seen before. But he has faith in his training, and that's going to pay off in a big way. As Paulinus is arranging his troops, he understands a few things. One of them is that he is terribly outnumbered by his opponent. He knows that. That's sort of part of the job. But the other is that because of the accessibility of the, of the region, he's probably going to be able to choose where he wants to fight Boudicca and her army. Remember, he abandoned Londinium. He abandoned London to be burnt to the ground because he knew that if he fought there, he couldn't use his training to his advantage. He'd very much be fighting on British terms. He didn't want to do that. So he decided that because he knew that one road called Watling Street uh, kind of goes across southern England uh, in a in a perpendicular fashion, east to west. Because Watling Street was such a prevalent and heavily trafficked route, they would probably meet somewhere on that road. And it was up to him, like any good military commander, to locate the place where that meeting was most advantageous for his men. Where can he best utilize his training? Where can he best utilize his, uh, his skill set? Again, he is a very disciplined person. And he knows that that's one advantage he does have, and there aren't many others. I mean, when you have about 15,000 people fighting about 200,000, I don't care if you're the Terminator. It just doesn't go your way very often. But this is exactly what Paulinus will do. Now, we don't know exactly where the location is he chooses, but Tacitus gives us a pretty accurate description of the land. He says that Paulinus puts his 15,000 men uh, in a narrow defile. There's trees to his rear uh, and to his left and right. So I want you to imagine Paulinus putting his soldiers in the center of a horseshoe. It's a horseshoe. It's made of maybe high ground and trees. The back of the horseshoe is to the back of his men. That sounds dangerous because it sounds like he could be trapped if they pushed in, which he could. But what Paulinus wants to do 
is control the open mouth of the horseshoe, make sure the fighting's there. That way, the 200,000 British warriors have to sort of narrow themselves down into it, and he can fight them toe-to-toe with superior training and superior numbers. Again, we don't know where this Battle of Watling Street occurs. We have a few pretty good ideas. Um, But again, the land is so stripped of trees today, it's much harder to visualize. At any rate, what is today St. Albans City in England uh, will be destroyed by Boudicca. That brings her to uh, three total cities annihilated. And what Paulinus does is arrange his men in this narrow horseshoe of trees, this narrow defile on Watling Street, knowing full well Boudicca and her army will meet them head-to-head there. This is where one of the great military victories ever engineered occurs. I mean, how do 15,000 Roman soldiers take on 200,000 angry, motivated, passionate British tribal warriors? I'll explain it to you now. What Paulinus will do, commanding the mouth of this horseshoe of trees around him, uh, is arrange his men in groups of about 15. These are straight columns of 15. Um, Eight in the front, seven in the back. On either side of those 15 columns, there are two big groups of cavalry, soldiers on horseback, and they'll protect the left and right flank. So he has full command of the front of this natural horseshoe, as we say. As Boudicca and her warriors begin to march toward them, and again, we'll call this the Battle of Watling Street, they're very angry, they're passionate, they're shooting, they're, they're hooting and hollering, but they're not necessarily advancing forward, not yet because they're trying to see exactly what Paulinus has done. Now, these 15 line of men are not like a traditional line. It's not a straight line. But he arranges these men, and this is incredibly difficult to describe, even more difficult to execute, in a formation that kind of looks like the teeth of a saw. Go to at Brady Kreitzer on Twitter. Go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. I'm going to post a diagram of this. But the line of men, as he arranges them, kind of look like the teeth of a saw. It's a straight line with triangular portions, side by side, of men arranged coming out of it. So it looks like several wedge shapes. The idea is, if it was straight across and he collided with the British, uh, there's very little chance of success in terms of the numbers. But if you treat it like a saw, if you arrange it like a saw blade, and you steadily march forward little by little, you can do a lot of damage to the sort of disorganized and unruly force in front of you. And that's exactly what he'll do. 200,000 screaming maniacs will charge at the at the Romans. They keep their shields very close together. They're arranged in this saw-like formation, and they slowly but surely march forward. Now, if you can imagine the teeth of a saw, as the British come forward, uh, they start to fill in the gaps between the teeth of the saw, and before long, they're trapped in there. Now, again, Paulinus doesn't have a lot of men, but this tactic, this strategy, requires the enemy to be vastly uh, more powerful. Because what happens is, uh, all of the people who continue the charge behind the initial group begin to press on the the people in front of them. So all those British uh, warriors that filled into the teeth of the saw, so to speak, are then compressed. And the more people that compress, the less able they are to raise their arms, to raise their swords, to raise their spears. They become trapped. This is sort of like when a mob of people starts to storm and stampede in a very tight space. Nobody can move. Well, someone is moving. The Romans are moving. And they're moving forward little by little, slashing and stabbing and cutting. And these warriors have no chance. I mean, who would have thought 200,000 strong? They certainly didn't. After burning the three biggest cities in Roman Britain, 
that they'd be stopped by these 15,000 Roman soldiers. But they're very well disciplined. They're marching in precise ways. And they're finding tremendous victory. As more warriors pull in, the compression continues. The, the Romans continue marching forward, cutting down uh, the, the British warriors. Before long, the British turn and retreat. Because the Iceni, the Trinovantes, have never seen this kind of formation before, and they've never seen this kind of carnage before. Now, when the battle started, like any armies, there will be followers of the army, mostly the women and children, the families of the soldiers. They had wagons with them, and they actually used those wagons to close off the mouth of the horseshoe. Because they thought, there's no way this battle would ever go against us. I mean, we're just going to roll them over. And they sat there and watched. Well, the problem is, the combination of the retreat of the British with the advancing uh, Romans turns those wagons into a wall, trapping them in this horseshoe. As the Roman soldiers march, then the Roman cavalry comes in. And before long, there's absolutely positively nowhere to go. It is a total disaster for Queen Boudicca. Her army of 200,000 people is wiped out. Tacitus puts the death toll as high as 80,000, as low as 70,000. But any way you look at that, my God, how terrible. The Romans will not only kill all of the retreating soldiers, they will massacre the women and children. Because again, they have a very specific view for these, what they would call barbarian populations. They don't care much for them. And they want to show them that you cannot rebel against Rome and not expect to pay a price. The story of Boudicca starts to disappear after that. Some sources indicate that she killed herself, others that she died of natural causes shortly after the Battle of Watling Street. But again, she'll disappear from the history books, and we're left with, yet again, another example of someone in life being far smaller than they are in death. Because as time goes by, uh, the British will never again really resist the Romans during the next 400 years. The Romans will begin to dictate the future of that island. But in time, when the Roman Empire falls and Britain's reconquered and so on and so forth, Boudicca becomes a pretty important figure. I mean, mostly in like modern history, you know, the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, uh, she really becomes a symbol of British pride. She becomes sort of the quintessential British woman. In the reign of Queen Victoria, that's the second half of the 1800s, the second half of the 19th century, people start to build statues of Boudicca. Again, the British Empire is the largest empire on the planet, the largest empire the world's ever seen. And the idea of this British woman resisting power in the world and, and, and trying to reconquer it becomes really important and symbolic for the British. So if you go to London today, there were statues of Queen Boudicca everywhere. Never mind that, you know, she burned it. But at any rate, she has that really important legacy of resistance, of national pride. She's become a real symbol for the British people. And one of the most important stories, I think, in the ancient world. Because rebellions against Rome don't really succeed. I mean, in any regard. You might gain a little bit of ground very quickly, but you tend to lose it. But the fact that Boudicca in 60 and 61 to a degree uh, was able to perpetuate this rebellion, burn down Camulodunum, Londinium, these are major cities, and really wipe out an entire, entire legion of, of the Roman Empire, indicates that she was doing something pretty unique at a time when, again, in the ancient history, women tend to be erased from the history books. Now, in season two of wartime, we talked about the ancient world. And we talked about how very few women are left in the record. Women who do great things, that is. 
because they tend to be expunged, and that's one of the drawbacks of the ancient world. We only have the sources left behind. But Boudicca remains eternal, and she remains eternal not because the Romans tried to erase her or eliminate her, but because the British people kept her idea alive, her spirit alive. And I think that's what's very important. Again, Boudicca is the first woman we're going to talk about in Season 4 of Wartime Game Changers, but in no way, shape, or form is she the last. Game Changers come in all shapes and sizes, colors, and genders. As always, next week you pick the topic. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.